go. These this way. Good to see you today. Thanks, Damien. Um, if, if you want to use one of our um, Isaiah journals, um, good place to make notes, have some of the text and a bit of space to do that. Um, if you haven't got one, there are still some, I think, in the box at the back. Um, you can go and grab one as we're just sorting ourselves out. Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. <clears throat> I might strain my voice a bit when I was singing. <laughs> See how we get on. God in heaven, we pray that as we have just sung, that we would uh, come to you just as we are. Lord, Lord, thank you that we don't have to pretend. Lord, we don't have to put on a show. You know, you know exactly what we are. You know who we are. You know what we've done, where we've come from, how we feel. Lord, as we are, we come to you and we praise you that in your word you speak to us. And we pray that as you speak and as we come, that we would, we would know a real living connection with you, God Almighty. Amen. Amen. Uh, when, when we were first married, something really wonderful happened. Um, a, a coffee shop opened up just near to us. And um, uh, it's, it's called the Workhouse Coffee Shop. It is everything a coffee shop ought to be. Um, it, on the kind of corner of this busy, bustling, kind of quite multicultural street. And very, the, the shop was very stripped back, very basic. It was all about the coffee. Um, and the, the guy who owned it was obsessed, like kind of slightly disturbingly obsessed with coffee. Um, I remember once speaking to one of the members of staff, and this member of staff said they weren't being paid to work there. They had another job in a shop called Starbucks that did pay them, but they wanted to work here because they wanted to work with this guy who was so obsessed with coffee. He was crazy. And you'd go in there, well, I'd say you, I would go in there quite often with a book, and I'd sit there, and this guy who owned it would come in, he'd be bustling around, and he'd uh, be excited. He'd got some new bean in or something, and he'd be brewing it, and he'd be rushing around to all the tables, giving away free coffee to, to, because he was so excited about sharing um, this new thing. Um, I, I once spoke to him about his staff, and, and he um, said that whenever he interviews anyone to work with him, the only thing he really is interested in is, is the person passionate about anything? Do they care about anything? Is there something that drives them? Now, for this guy, his passion was obvious. Um, he, it was because he loved coffee so much, it made it a good place to go for coffee. That's why I kept going back. Now, when someone is obsessed with something and they invest all their energy into it, it gives you some confidence um, that you can rely on them to deliver. When the obsession is matched with competence, it makes for good coffee. Um, we're looking at the book of Isaiah. Uh, you'll see hopefully why that makes sense at some point. And we're looking at the book of Isaiah, the question over this great book in the Bible, it's a long book, the question that hangs over it is, what can you rely on? What can you rely on? Now, the section that we're in at the moment lands at a time of great crisis for the nation of Judah. Now, we saw back in chapter 7 that the king of the time, King Ahaz, is kind of scheming on what he can rely on in the time of national crisis. Uh, he's thinking maybe they need to go to the mighty Assyrian Empire to get them out of their fix. And God's message that comes to him through the prophet is, if you trust Assyria, that's what you'll get. Uh, and Assyria's passion, their obsession, is to ruthlessly enlarge their borders. That's what they are all about. 
And the Lord says, if you want Assyria, that's what you will get. But if you turn to the Lord, the Lord opens his arms to them, offers his hand to them. But Ahaz isn't interested. He turns away. And God keeps speaking. Uh, And the section of Isaiah we're in, really the, the theme is that when everything falls apart, you can trust in the Lord. When everything falls apart, you can trust in the Lord. Uh, we saw last week that chapter 9 begins a bit of a kind of subsection. Um, uh, we've got our, our passage all about the reign of a righteous king. Then the, the, there are kind of two passages um, that, that address the, the pride in Israel and then the pride in Assyria. And then it gets wrapped up again in chapter 11 with another passage on the reign of the righteous king. Now, and what's happening is that to help the people trust the Lord... He reveals his plan, he's going to bring a righteous king, and he confronts the tendency that people have to try and work it all out by themselves, their pride. And as those messages against pride ring out, the point is, you don't need to find it in yourself. You can stop thinking it's all down to you, because there is this one who is so much more competent than you are, and he's committed to do you good, and you can trust him. Uh, today we are taking a, a second go at chapter 9, 1-7. to uh, Last time we saw how there is a, a sudden upward turn in this passage. Uh, chapter 8 ends with a warning. Um, it's pretty bleak actually. It says if the people keep ignoring the Lord, there won't be any hope. And at the end of chapter 8, they'll be thrust into utter darkness. Then we come into chapter 9 and we hear the people living in that darkness, which now is called deep darkness, literally the shadow of death. People who live under that shadow, under the fear of death, will find light shining on them. A light that pushes back the darkness, a light that overcomes the threat of death. The light shines. Verse 3, it brings an explosion of happiness. Verse 4 and 5, that they explain this endless joy is released because... Well, the the death shadow of verse 2 is described in verse 4 as a yoke, a crushing burden, and the light shines and it smashes the yoke. The bondage of death is shattered by the coming of the light. The the promises that are are packed in here are promises of such immense proportion that that they're unwieldy, that they're hard to manage. And for Isaiah's time, these promises were being preached to them, to, to these people locked in darkness. How can they trust such promises when everything around them is falling apart? Isaiah's own testimony, we, we've seen it a few times. 8 verse 17, he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. I will put my trust in him. In Isaiah's time of darkness, it was these promises that were feeding his faith. He was treasuring these promises to sustain him in his dark time. worth noting that these are the promises we find running through all the scriptures, every page of scripture, right from the the, the original goodness through to the final bliss, right from Genesis 3.15 when we find the promise of the serpent crusher, the promise that the, the yoke of evil's hold will be crushed through the promises to Abraham and to Israel and to David and then the momentous events of the Christ, the coming of the Christ, his death, his resurrection, uh, his, his expected return and the promise of a restored world with all the sadness removed and endless joy and deathless paradise. 
Promises are heard throughout the whole of the scriptures. But like in Isaiah's time, we hear these promises when the gloom of darkness can still hang heavy over our lives. Now these promises, like for those people, they can sound like they're too distant, they're too hard for us to get hold of. We hear them, but they're just, it's too much, and so we lower our expectations, we hope for little things. Oh, we're picking up this morning in verse 6. And if you notice that verse 6 begins with the word for. Now the question is, how can the promises be achieved? And the answer that we find in verse 6 is not what can bring about the promises, but who. See, hope we find in the Bible is not an abstract thing, it's a personal thing. A hope is not about hope in some things, but hope in someone. Now, verse 6 explains that the great promises rest on a who. Who can bring about such a stunning transformation? Who has shoulders which are broad enough to carry this hope? The direct question for us this morning is, who can we trust in our darkness? However deep our darkness might go, who can we really rely on? And what we find here is that the how of the promises in verses 2 to 5 is a who in verse 6. The who is a king, and he's a king like no other, and he reigns over a kingdom with no end. And we have to keep asking as we look at this, can we trust our lives to him? Well, what's he like? What is his character? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The who is this child to be born. Isaiah 7 spoke about a child who would be born and called Emmanuel, God with us. Now we hear that that child who will be born His name is also going to be Mighty God. The the expectation is that this one who is going to come will be both earthy and heavenly. He'll both be born as a child. He will be like all human people emerging from a mother's womb. And Mighty God. Isaiah has already shown us back in chapter 6 that when Isaiah talks about God, he means the one who is irreducibly other. God is uncreated, he's unchanging, he's, he's infinitely perfect, he's, he's maximum in everything that he is, possesses eternity in himself. Now we can't really find words to describe how different God is to us. Even the words we use are created things, and God is not a created thing, he's not part of creation, he stands above and beyond all things. You've got to be clear, when, when, when Isaiah says the child will be called mighty God, what he means He uses that phrase, mighty God, on one other occasion, in chapter 10, verse 21. And here, he's saying, mighty God describes and names the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah doesn't know any other God. In later chapters, he will celebrate the uniqueness of God. Repeatedly, the message will come from the Lord that says, I am God, and there is no other. When Isaiah says the child will be named mighty God... He is saying that the unique 
and the only God in his unchanging glory without ever stopping being God, there will come a point in history when he will be born as a human child. Truly, this child will be Emmanuel, God with us. And what we have here will be called the Incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus at the first Christmas. God not stopping being God, always being God, but becoming what he was not. Becoming flesh, so he can live among us, fully God, fully man, two natures in the one person. That's why the first name that we're told is wonderful. Wonderful, the, the name means he, it belongs to the realm of the other, which supernatural we might say. It's that he belongs to the category of only God can do that. Uh, only one who can create all things from nothing. Uh, only one who can bring into existence what is not and can rule over everything with all authority and all power. The category of, of only what can happen if you have a God like that in view. Wonderful. Now we're told about this God man because he is the explanation of how the great promises in 2 to 5 can happen. We're told about this God man Because in our darkness, he is the one to whom we can direct our trust as we wait for the coming of the light. That's why Isaiah tells us his many names. See, a a name in the Bible is a character description. Like like, like the Mr. Men. And Mr. Happy is named Mr. Happy because he's, he's happy. Mr. Bump is named Mr. Bump because he's always bumping it. The name describes them. That's, that's why we have all these names. These names in verse 6 are given to help us know what he's like and so we can know what he's like so that we can trust him. And these names are a bit like a Swiss army knife. A Swiss army knife has got lots of different blades designed for different situations. If you need to open a can, you turn out the blade for opening a can. If you need to saw a bit of wood, you turn out the blade that is a saw for a bit of wood. There's a blade fit for every need. Well, here we have these names, names suited to every need, names to help draw our trust in him in the different shades of our darkness. Let's have a look at his name. His first name is that he is Wonderful Counselor. The predicament in Isaiah's Jerusalem is they're under attack and they don't know what to do. And the first name of this king is all about knowing what to do. He's a counselor. The ancient kings of the time would have an array of counsellors around them, men of of insight and wisdom who always knew what to do. They could advise on the best course of action. This king doesn't need a counsellor because he himself is wonderful counsellor. He always knows what is best to do. A darkness brings confusion, doesn't it? And so often our, our perspective gets muddled we we lose sight of the things that matter we get disorientated and and in times of crisis we just don't know what to do Uh, and we look for advice don't we we ask our friends maybe we search on google sometimes we get so desperate we'll try anything the name of this king is wonderful counselor he invites us to go to him and what we find is that his counsel is wonderful that the wisdom he has is not the wisdom of this world he has a wisdom that knows that weakness is strength and, and that small is often enough and, and how losing can be winning and how death can bring life. When we go to him for counsel, often we find our questions get 
reshaped, reworked. He doesn't always tell us what we expect. Now, like in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus speaks about the needs that we have in life, our material needs, we have needs for food and for clothing and for drink. We have these, these real needs. Now, he teaches that we should go to him for it, go to the Father for them to ask for our daily bread. But, but his counsel to those who worry about these things, his counsel is not to tell them where to go and find them. He says, your father knows you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. His counsel is wonderful. It's not worldly counsel, not advice limited to the perspective of these four walls. His perspective is divine and his counsel is perfect. His name is Wonderful Counselor, inviting us in our muddles to go to him. His second name is Mighty God. This is a warrior title, saying that he possesses divine might. In the battle, he cannot lose. There's no enemy that will stand against him. In Isaiah's Jerusalem, there were enemy armies, an array of enemy armies threatening at their borders, maybe even beginning to cross over the borders. King Ahaz, he wants to find rescue in the might of the Assyrians, but here we find another one, one whose might is beyond comparison, one before whom all the, the earthly armies gathered together with every weapon that has ever been imagined or conceived by humanity. If you combined it all together and put it in one place, it would be like dust on the scales before this one. He is mighty God. And the message at that time, don't go to Assyria for help. You have the mighty God available. I go to the one who, whose might infinitely exceeds anything that Assyria could bring. And the name of this king is Mighty God. He invites us to go to him. And we're not able to stand against the forces of evil in this world, are we? They're too much for us. We're not able to stand against the sin we produce in our own hearts. Our own wickedness is too much for us. And, and that there is an evil one who will make mischief with us on this. He will taunt us. He will tell us that we are weak and wicked and remind us of our worthlessness and, and say it over and over again. And he will always be accusing us. But you see, this king is called Mighty God. He has such power. Such power that he came to be clothed in our humanity so he can take from us our sin. And we'll see it described more clearly in Isaiah 53 that will tell us that this king will take up our pain and he will bear our suffering and be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and he will take the punishment that will win our peace. His power is so great. One of the commentators said, it can absorb all the evil which can be hurled at it until none is left to hurl. strength to carry all our sin onto himself and to bear the punishment we deserve so that we can be fully and completely forgiven of everything. He has a name that invites us to go to him. Go to him when we realize our weakness. Go to him when we fall in our sin. Go to him because he has such might to carry away our transgressions, to separate our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And then carry us on his shoulders all the way home. 
He is mighty God. His third name is Everlasting Father. This is a king with father-like qualities. Uh, The Bible tells us the major father-like quality is this. Psalm 103 says, As a father has 